together. Father, we know that you have apportioned to us our own share of tears and weeping. We have experienced them and we know that more are ahead. But Father, we also know that you are working within us an eternal weight of glory far beyond any comparison. So Father, we pray that you would help us in the midst of the tears to look forward and hope and to know that you care for us. And Father, that you would put in us a resolve to be faithful and obedient and to train our minds on eternal things for as long as you give us breath. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants is that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember some years ago reading Don Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. I'm just curious. Did anybody read that book in here? Raise your hand if you read that book. You remember that book? It was kind of popular among evangelicals uh, probably around the mid to early 2000s. It really, for some reason, captured everyone's imagination. I hardly hear anything about the author or the book anymore, but there was one part from the book that always stuck out to me. The author of the book, Don Miller, talks about how he came from, if I remember correctly, a dysfunctional home that was a cause of great pain in his life. And for that reason, when he was a child, he used to love to watch The Cosby Show. And he said that he wished his family could be the Cosby family. He wanted a Cliff Huxtable-like dad and a Claire Huxtable-like mom and well-adjusted siblings who were funny and warm. He, he just wanted the fun, the warmth, the togetherness, and the love that everybody saw depicted on that fictional family. I, I think Miller was right about the Cosby show uh, it really was one of those, um, one of the best depictions, really, of a family on television. Even um, Bill Cosby's folksy fatherly authority, which seemed to ring true with who he really was for everybody who had heard his comedy and everything that he had said about his real-life family. It, it, his folksy fatherly authority was something that everybody admired. And this was the kind of family that everybody wanted. There were a lot of people like Don Miller who admired this fictional family for the same reasons that, that he did. That's one of the reasons why the fall of the real-life Bill Cosby in recent years has been so heartbreaking. The crimes that he committed, those are ab abhorrent all by themselves, but, but the, that image that people had of that loving father presiding over this loving family, all of that was shattered too. The hatefulness of the reality highlighted the fiction that was on the screen and just made it feel empty. And it's hard even to see that program now without a kind of, with, of grief. Jesus says that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. 
What happens to us if that command gets revealed as a farce among us? Yes, Jesus says that his disciples will be known by their love and their affection for one another. But what happens if this doesn't actually turn out to be the reality? We come into church week in, week out. We hear nice sermons. We sing nice songs. We have communion. We share a fellowship meal. But what if in the midst of these depictions of love, there exists beneath the surface backbiting, pride, self-seeking, harshness? In a word, what if there's lovelessness there? You know what happens if that's the case? It proves that the whole thing is just a fraud. It renders all of our liturgy and all of our traditions to be a fiction when the reality doesn't match what Jesus says his people are supposed to be. And Jesus says that we are supposed to be a community that is marked by love. If we're known by anything at all, we're supposed to be known by that. Love. If you haven't opened up your Bible's already. Open it up to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 16 and the first 12 verses of that chapter. In many commentaries that you read on 1 Corinthians chapter 16, this final chapter is treated as a sort of add-on, this forgettable denouement to an otherwise you know, pretty interesting book, a book um, that, that reaches its rhetorical climax in the soaring eschatological vision of chapter 15 in that talk about the resurrection that we looked at last time. But to read this final chapter in this way, I think, is to miss the point of the soaring vision of the resurrection that we read about in the last chapter. The point of the Lord's return and our resurrection in the future is to make us into a certain kind of people in the present. Paul rhapsodizes about the sweet by and by because he wants it to impact the nasty now and now, as some people call it. And there's much work to do now until the final day, and that work before us is summed up in, in Paul's words in verse 14 of this chapter. Look what he says. He says, let all that you do be done in love. That command is the touchstone for this final chapter and indeed for the entire book of 1 Corinthians. It's why Paul plopped chapter 13 down where he did. Because love is so central to everything that has to happen in a church and because it is actually the only thing that is going to cure all of the ills in any church. And so this isn't just the touchstone for this book. This has to be the touchstone for our lives. And so what Paul does in this final chapter is he commends seven different expressions of love in this final chapter. These seven expressions aren't merely for the Corinthians, but they are for, for us. And so what I'm going to do is in this sermon, I'm going to give you those first three commendations of love, and then we'll do the remaining four the next time. We're in 1 Corinthians. So the first three are this. He's going to commend a love for the poor, love for the congregation, and love for the ministry. So the first item here is love for the poor. Everybody look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. I'll 
I'll have you note there at verse 1, that little phrase, now concerning, which Paul's been repeating uh, throughout the book since chapter 7. And you may remember that when Paul uses that phrase, now concerning, it's signaling he's changing, uh, the, moving to a new topic. It also seems to signal that he's probably answering something from the letter that they had written to him. You remember that in chapter 7? Now concerning the things about which you wrote. And he repeats that phrase throughout the book. And now it looks like he's turning to a different topic and, and perhaps one that they had asked him about. And now he's turning to this issue of the collection. Paul actually doesn't give us very many details about whatever this collection is. But verse 3 that says that he plans to take up a collection and it's going to be a gift that is to go to Jerusalem. That means, I think, that this collection is most likely for the same cause that he mentions in his other letters. Because in his other letters, he talks about the fact that he's going around to different churches and taking up a collection. So for example, in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 10, Paul says this, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul says this in Romans chapter 15 in verses 25 and 26. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints the saints who were in Jerusalem, so the Jewish Christians who were there. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So it's really clear here what's going on. Paul says that he's taking up a collection from churches scattered across three different Roman provinces. Those provinces are mentioned in Romans, Macedonia, Achaia, and then here in 1 Corinthians he mentions Galatia, Three different Roman provinces. He's taking up collection from the churches. Why was he doing this? Well, he's doing it for the poor who are in Jerusalem, for the, the saints who are Jewish who were there in the holy city. And Paul says that there's a symbolic significance in the, in the Gentile churches, the, the Gentile churches giving financial assistance to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So also, I'm just going to read you, don't, don't worry about turning there, but in, in Romans 15, in verses 26 and 27, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So, Think about what's going on here. Paul is asking for the Gentiles to give a contribution to the poor believing Jews in Jerusalem. Paul is seeing that gift as a sign of the spiritual unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. But there's more. Paul also speaks of this collection as an expression of Christian love. Paul talks about this collection as well in 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about how the churches of Macedonia contributed to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. He urges those churches, he urges them to give even more. And he cites Jesus as an example of how liberal our giving is supposed to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That verse is actually not a standalone about Jesus. It's set forth as an example as to how God's people are supposed to give to this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul's saying that Jesus is the model for giving to the poor. And we are supposed to follow his example when caring for the needs of, the, of less fortunate Christians. And then, get this, back to 1 Corinthians 16. He gives specific instructions about how we're supposed to do this. Look at verse 2 in chapter 16. He says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, why would Paul specify that they should give on the first day of the week? I think it's likely he's doing this because this was when they gathered for worship every week as a congregation. They gathered for worship on that first day because that was when the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, the first day of the week. And in fact, the first day of the week, Sunday, came to be called the Lord's Day, if you read about it in Revelations chapter 1 and verse 10 where John has a, a, a vision on the Lord's day. Also, if you look in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it indicates that Christians gathered on the first day of the week in order to break bread together. So it's, it's not, not a surprise that Christians came to understand the Lord's day as a special day set aside for worship. And it's also no surprise that Paul would ask the Corinthians to set aside money as a part of their regular weekly rhythm of worship. But Paul also specifies that they should give to the collection as each one may prosper, it says in verse 2. That means, among other things, that we are not all asked to give the same amount, but to give generously in proportion to what your means are. That means that more people with more money will be giving more money than those people who have less money. But all are nevertheless asked to give. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3, he says that the churches in Macedonia gave according to their means. It's a proportionate kind of giving. So Paul wants them to take up this collection before he comes back to Corinth. He doesn't want to do a fundraising drive when he gets there. He wants it already done. He doesn't want to get to Corinth and say, hey, y'all, let's, let's pool all of our assets at this point. No, he wants it already done. It's possible that he's doing this because he wishes to avoid the appearance that he's taking up this collection for himself. If it's already done by the time he's getting there, it sort of avoids the appearance of that, and perhaps that's what he's, he's trying to do. But in any case, he wants this finished before he even arrives to Corinth. In fact, he goes out of his way to, to prove that he's, he's not going to be the one who gets this money. In case anybody had any question, look at verse 3. He says, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now catch what Paul's doing here. Paul says that he might go to Jerusalem with the gift, but even if he, does, uh, even if he doesn't go, he won't be the one who's in, in charge of it. Or even if he does go, he won't be the one who's in charge of the gift. Rather, the Corinthians, Paul says, the Corinthian congregation itself is supposed to select for themselves 
people that they trust to accompany Paul to make sure that nothing goes wrong with dispersing those funds to the poor people in Jerusalem. So in chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 20 to 21 Paul explains why. He says, "We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man." So what's going on here? Well, think about it this way. What if Instead of, um, you know, we, we give to the, to the church regularly, my, the Burke family does. What if instead of bringing my contribution to the church myself, I decided to do it a different way? What if every month when I received my paycheck, I went to Starbucks with an envelope stuffed full of cash, and I put it in the hands of the first person that I met in line, and I say, would you mind dropping this in the mail for me? Let's say I try that method of giving to the church for a couple of years. Do you think by the end of two years we might find that some of my money did not make it to the church? Is it really loving or helpful to this church to be so careless with my contributions to the church? What if we had a missionary that we supported out of this church who would, who would never welcome any of us to visit them on the mission field? Um, perhaps the missionary would come through town from time to time and take up an offering from us, but he would never let us see the work that he's engaged in. Would you consider that person to be trustworthy? Would you begin to wonder what your money was going to? Um, what if, you know, we're, we're funding right now, we're helping to fund, and we've helped to raise funds for the school in PNG. What if we had taken up all those funds but the people that were administering those funds said, please don't ever come here and see this. And by the way, we're never sending you any pictures. We would all rightly be questioning that, right? We would say, where is our money going? We would know that something fraudulent is happening if we were to do that. That's what Paul is trying to avoid here. He's at least trying to avoid the appearance of it. He doesn't want to give the impression that this money is for him or that he's making up stories about the poor in, in Jerusalem. After all, it's not like the givers, the, these Corinthians, would have been able to pick up the phone and call Jerusalem or that they could text each other pictures of what's going on there. They, there was no way to know about what was going on there except for what Paul was telling them. Paul is trustworthy, but he's not asking them to take his word for it. He's saying, pick out your own people whom you trust to take this gift to Jerusalem I'll show them the way if I can, but this will be your gift to the saints. You will be the ones who are giving it. Now, this is a mouthful here, but I think there are a number of applications in these four, first four verses. A number of applications. First of all, it matters that a congregation have a faithful, open accounting of how its money is spent. If you ever see a leader or someone else emerge in the church who wants to take contributions without being accountable for how that money is actually spent, don't trust that leader. It's not loving or helpful to people in need to be so careless with the money that's given to this church that we would squander those gifts on untrustworthy stewards. So that's the first thing. It matters that we have a faithful, open accounting of these things. Second thing, 
Notice that Paul is holding the Corinthian congregation accountable for the disbursing of these, these funds. It's a matter of congregational stewardship that they select their own people to ensure a faithful accounting for this money. This is, I, I think it's just one more evidence of the fact that there is a congregational polity reflected in the Bible. It's why we here at Kenwood do things the way we do around here. It's why you know, the elders can recommend a budget to this congregation, but we don't make the budget for this congregation. At the end of the day, we can recommend a budget, but this congregation has to approve that budget, and they get to see how we're planning to, to spend the money. It's also why we have a church treasurer, so Vicki Searles, who writes the checks and keeps the books in our church. So the elders are leading, but our constitution provides an opportunity for the congregation to have a hand in all that we're doing. And the reason is because it's not because we're saying anybody's untrustworthy. We just want to have a faithful and open accounting of these things before the congregation. And the congregation is responsible to make sure that this is happening. Third, Paul's directions are designed to ensure that giving to the church, I think, is systematic, organized, and proportional. Now, it's systematic in that the funds are set aside once a week in connection with worship, so, which means you should be doing this. As a congregation, you individually should be setting aside funds as the Lord um, prospers you for, for giving to the church. So it needs to be systematic and planned. It should be organized in the sense that the church is the one who's taking up this collection, and it's proportional in that each person is giving according to their means. And I, I think... Paul is setting forth a pattern here that ought to mark us. We ought to be giving in the exact same way. Fourth thing to notice from this, and it's the most obvious thing, we should care about the needy who are among us. And that care should not be in word only, but also in deed and in truth, which means when there is a real need in this congregation, we as a congregation should use the resources that God has given us to meet that need. Now, God does call us to be discerning in this, doesn't he? You remember in 2 Thessalonians where there was a group of people who were sponging off of the church's treasury, saying, oh, you know, the Lord's coming is near. We're not going to work anymore. We're just going to sort of live off of the church's money. And God said, those people can starve, okay? If, 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 if a man won't work, don't let him eat. So, you know, otherwise able-bodied people who refuse to care for themselves, I think there's admonitions in the scripture, don't, don't subsidize that. But that's not everybody. There, there are sometimes genuine needs, right? People have needs that they need met, and I think this text is telling us we need to be, be prepared to help to meet those needs as we are able to. And so from time to time in this church, we actually do that We don't broadcast it because not everybody wants their hardship broadcast uh, to the whole church. But just know that this is what the church is, is for. And this is one of the ways that we're supposed to be caring for one another and looking out for one another. And we, we do that by showing love to the poor who are among us. And that, that love actually has resources behind it sometimes. It did for Paul and it should be that way for us. So Paul is commending this love for the poor through this collection that he's taking up, but he's also commending a love for the Corinthians. And, and by that I mean it's Paul's love for the Corinthians. Everybody look at verse 5. 
Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Now, this verse is simply announcing Paul's travel plans. He's, he's, he's going to come to the Corinthians. He's already been there once when he first preached the gospel there and planted the church in Corinth. He has every intention of going back to them. And look what he says at verse 6. He says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So Paul intends to spend more than a little time with them. If he, if, if, um, he says here, if he spends the winter with them, that means that he's intending to stay with them not merely for days or weeks, but for months or even longer. The question is, why would he stay so long? Well, one reason is that because he wants them, quote, to help me on my journey wherever I go. And, and when Paul says he needs some help on his journey, he's using a, a word here that's um, used in the New Testament to, to express the church's obligation to send and support missionaries. It's a very particular word. So even though Paul is, is not taking up a coll that collection for himself, he does intend for them to support his ministry and to launch him on his, the next leg of his mission to the Gentiles. But that's not his only purpose for coming to them because he's saying he's going to stay for a long while. Look at verse 7. He says, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Paul's clear that he intends to stay with them for, for a while. He doesn't want to be there just a little time, but a, a lot of time. Why would he want to do that? Well, it's clearly not merely for their support. He could get their support from them without having to stay there for months on end. Why does he want to stay with them for so long? I think it's because, well, it's clear, it's because he loves them and he wants to care for them. He has just gone through an entire letter to them laying out all of their problems, problems that are substantial. I think it looks like he, look, he's trying to say to them that he wants to be there to help them to get through and to affirm that they're following his teaching. Look at verse 8. He says, I do want to come to you, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work <coughs> has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Pentecost is this Jewish festival for the new grain offering, and it occurs every... Uh, 50 days after Passover, according to Leviticus chapter 23. And so what that means is, is that Paul is intending to stay where he is in Ephesus until early summer before he just, you know, picks up and travels to Corinth. So notice what he says here. He, he intends to linger in Ephesus because a wide door has been opened up to him. And that wide door refers to favorable circumstances for preaching the gospel. Paul's not specific about the opposition that he faces, but he does say that there are adversaries that are there. He's already mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians that he, is, he has had to fight with wild beasts at Ephesus. You remember that in 1 Corinthians 15, 32? So, so the pushback that he was getting was significant if he's referring to them as wild beasts. We also know later in 2 Corinthians Paul explains how bad it actually got for him while he was in Asia. 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We don't know exactly what happened to Paul in Ephesus, but we do know that the opposition eventually got so bad that he thought it would cost him his life. And yet, look what Paul says. Look what he says to the Corinthians. He says, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Which means this, just because there are adversaries doesn't mean there is not a wide door open for the work of the gospel to prosper. How much does Paul love the work of the gospel? Enough to suffer and even to die for it. How much does he love the Corinthians? Enough to take the time to write to them a letter in the midst of a difficult trial in Ephesus. And that's what's going on here. Think about this. Paul is in the midst of an extreme circumstance, and yet he's writing this letter to them. Some of you know that a couple of years ago, I was involved with the publication of the Nashville Statement on Biblical Sexuality. Some of you also know that as a result of that, uh, our ministry and me personally received an enormous amount of vitriolic blowback, both on social media and in the mainstream press. And, and I'm just telling you now that the days after the publication of that statement, they were, they were difficult. They, it was a weight and it was a, it was a burden to me. And I felt under siege personally. Um, the, the, in fact, the pressure had a, a physical effect on me. I remember one day my head was just splitting open with a headache just from the, the stress of it. My thoughts were dominated by the opposition and how we were going to weather the storm. And I remember one day having to just leave my study just to get outside, put everything aside and to, to pray. And I just went outside to, to exercise and to pray and to, to blow off some steam. And while I was on this walk, I opened up my Bible on my phone and it just happened to open up to Acts chapter 18 and verses 9 through 10, where the Lord Jesus says to Paul, do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And those were the words of the Lord Jesus to Paul when Paul was thinking about giving up on the ministry in Corinth because of the opposition that he was facing. And the Lord told him to stay and to tough it out and, he, and that he didn't need to flee the opposition. He just needed to stay and see this thing through which is exactly what Paul did. He stayed there in Corinth for a year and a half because of this word from the Lord Jesus. And we're reading 1 Corinthians now because there's a church in Corinth because Paul stayed there and preached. But as I was reading those words on my walk, it was like this balm from Gilead. I, was, I, was, I couldn't stop the tears from flowing, even though I was outside in broad daylight on the sidewalk. But here's the thing. In that moment when I felt beleaguered, I never faced anything like Paul faced. I never faced the people trying to take my life. I never faced people trying to stone me or to beat me within an inch of my life. And yet, in the thing that I was facing, I was, I was dominated by it. My thoughts were dominated by it. Think about 
how different Paul is from that experience that I'm describing to you. Paul is in Ephesus carrying out a ministry in the face of opposition. In the, the kind of opposition that's not just bad social media or press stories. It's people trying to kill him. And what does he tell them? He says, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here. There are many adversaries, but there is a wide door open before me. Look at his attitude. I'm going to stay here through early summer. He's not skipping town. And guess what else he does in the midst of the trial? In the face of this opposition that he's facing from adversaries, he writes this letter to the Corinthians. He's not so buried under the anxiety of his own situation that he can't think about the needs of the saints in Corinth or the needs of the saints in Jerusalem on the other side of the sea from him. One of the bad things about anxiety and about fear when it overcomes you is you can't think about anybody else. You can't care for anybody else. And yet look what Paul is doing here. He's facing many adversaries and he's writing to the Corinthians, trying to pastor them and to shepherd them. He loves them so much he writes to them to make sure that they're not overcome by the world and by the flesh. He wants them to know that he's coming to them again and he's, he's coming to stay for a long time. Why? Because he loves them. And so the question is, are we able to love like this? When the pressures are on and we're anxious and worried about stuff in this life, can we love each other like this? Because our worries can make us tunnel visioned and can make us angry and prickly and hard to be around and not even realizing that we're not loving others and seeing the needs around us. The kind of love that God is trying to cultivate in this congregation and in every congregation is the kind that sees people suffering and sees those suffering people loving others in the midst of it. So Paul talks about love for the poor, love for the Corinthians, finally, quickly. He talks about love for the ministry. He says in verse 10, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. We all know who Timothy is. He's one of the, Paul's closest fellow workers in his mission to the Gentiles. Paul tells them that Timothy is eventually coming their way and that when he does, they should put him at ease. Uh, the, the New American Standard Bible renders this as, it says, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. The NIV says it even better. See to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. Well, why would Timothy have something to fear while being among God's people in Corinth. Well, think back on what we've looked at in this book. These people have been dividing themselves into different factions based on their devotion to different teachers, and some of them are really devoted to Apollos. And it seems to be that some of them maybe aren't all that crazy about Paul anymore. Their respect is waning a little bit for whatever reason, for their factionalism. And here Paul has just written them a book where he has been in their, their business for 16 chapters. And he's been telling them that they have got to get themselves sorted out. Quit it with the factions. Quit it with the lawsuits. Stop it with tolerating this guy who's having an affair with his stepmom. Stop it with the visiting of the prostitutes. Stop it with going crazy with the, the gifts that are, you're abusing in your church. He's just, he's, it's one correction after another in this book. And he's sending this to some people who ostensibly may not be so crazy about him. How would you like to be Timothy? <laughs> Paul says to Timothy, you know, Timothy, can you go to Corinth now and, you know, be my representative to them? 
Timothy, you know, Tim, if I were Timothy, I might say, you know, I think I have something to do that week, you know. Um, but, but no, Timothy's got to go, right? And so Timothy is going to be going to Corinth. And so Paul is saying, look, when he gets there, you have got to treat him right. Let no one despise him, verse 11, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Help him on his way is the same thing that he said about himself. You support him as a missionary. Don't be tempted not to respect him. You treat him like me. You treat him like an apostle because he is my representative. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, uh, to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity, which means I think Paul's balancing a delicate political situation. They probably didn't want to see Timothy coming up the road. They wanted to see Apollos coming up the road. Paul said, I told him to come. I wanted him to come, but he's not coming. And it's, it could have been his will or God's will, but he's, he's not coming right now. But Paul wants them to support the ministry. He wants them to be reconciled. He wants to be reconciled to them. He wants for Timothy to be reconciled to them. And he wants them to show that reconciliation through the support of Timothy's coming to them. Paul's request isn't coming out of left field. He's getting this from the Lord Jesus himself who said that the worker is worthy of his support. Jesus told the 70 in Luke 10, 7, the labor is worthy of his wages. And so Paul says that he has every right to expect their support of Timothy when he comes. So there's the small point here for us is, is that this should be our expectation. If we love one another and we love the ministry, we are going to love the propagation of the ministry, which means we are going to put our money where our mouth is, and we're going to support those who are propagating the gospel. So Paul commends love for the poor, love for the congregation, love for the ministry. How are we doing on this at Kenwood? Is our love for each other real and vital? Paul says that it can't be a fiction. It can't be that we're saying one thing but yet doing another. I do believe that our, our love for each other in this church is real and vital. I'm, I'm grateful for it. I really believe that. But there's always room for us to grow in these areas and to show that Jesus is, in fact, Lord by showing how we love one another. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use this word to conform us into the image of Christ who was crucified and raised for us. Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to love the ministry. Help us to love the poor. And Lord, let that be a testimony to what you've done in us so that people will know that we're your disciples and be saved. Father, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.